Did you know that elements from well-known video games such as Call of Duty and World of Warcraft are being utilized by terrorist and violent extremist organizations for radicalization and recruitment purposes? A well-known ISIS hacker and propagandist once tweeted, You can sit at home and play Call of Duty, or you can come and respond to the real Call of Duty. The choice is yours. But following the 2019 Christchurch attack, when dozens of people were killed during two consecutive mass shootings, a number of users on the online forum 8chan commented on a hybrid account and expressed desire to beat the perpetrator's core. This is Tech Against Terrorism. I'm Flora Devereaux. And I'm Megan Janin. In this episode, we are exploring how violent extremist groups are exploiting gaming culture and using gamification processes to serve a radicalization agenda and distort perception of reality. The Christchurch and Haller attacks, both motivated by far-right violent extremist ideologies, were live-streamed by their perpetrators. Many researchers have commented on the fact that, once online, those watching these attacks experience them through the perspective of the attackers, akin to first-person shooter games. Such exploitation of gaming culture is never a new phenomenon, nor is it limited to far-right violent extremists. The Islamic State is one of the most well-known groups to use gaming language and video game imagery, especially for its production of first-person shooter propaganda videos. In addition to the exploitation of gaming visuals, other terrorist and violent extremist groups have been known to develop their own video games to add recruitment. From Hezbollah Holy Defense to the Davis Thomas Dune 2, The exploitation of gaming culture often relies on a process that experts call gamification, which is when gaming elements are implemented into non-gaming settings with the end goal of behavioural change. While this is often used by companies to increase engagement with their products via point collection and leaderboards, terrorists and violent extremist groups have also adopted this process to serve their own agenda. Video games and gaming elements are exploited to desensitize users to violence, especially through first-person shooter perspective and anchoring existing beliefs by displaying visuals and iconography reminiscent of their ideologies. However, this isn't a solely top-down process, and those engaging with terrorist and violent extremist content can also enter a process of self-gamification to modify their perception of their own radicalization process, especially by bringing gaming elements into the real world. Many violent extremists exploit gaming platforms as well. An ever-growing industry, those platforms are varied and serve different purposes for gamers, from enabling playing to live streaming and discussion, and are especially popular amongst young internet users. Due to the technological offerings of some of these platforms, some terrorist and violent extremist actors are creating bold and line gaming environments to set up propaganda and reinforce community ties. To get a better understanding of how terrorists and violent extremists exploit gaming culture for their own ends, we are joined today by Linda Schlegel and Dr. Nick Robinson. Linda is a senior editor at the Counterterrorism Group and a regular contributor for the European Eye on Radicalization where she recently published a number of articles on the exploitation of gaming culture. Nick is an associate professor in politics and international studies at Leeds University. He has been researching the links between video games, social media, militarism and terrorism for over a decade now. Linda and Nick, a very warm welcome to the show. Hi. Hi there. First question sort of to set the scene up to this discussion. Could you tell us a little bit about why terrorists and violent extremist actors are exploiting gaming culture? So I think the main part for that um, is that they choose to do it because it presents a discursive opportunity structure. 
gaming culture is familiar in referencing of familiar images, familiar speech, familiar references to games many people play. In exploiting this familiarity, extremists can sort of try to make their frames more resonant uh, with their target audiences. And especially for right-wing extremists, there is a sort of subcultural repertoire that they can play on the whole sort of 8chan uh, culture, um, a bit nihilistic, ironic, satirical. You're not really sure whether it's a joke or serious. So they can really sort of try to move the discourse in a certain direction that they would like it to, and uh, that way inspire people to possibly uh, take action and exploit their knowledge of gaming culture and their liking of gaming culture in their radicalization processes. What I would sort of differentiate between, I guess, is the, the historical focus, really, and the more contemporary one. And I think historically, just to sort of add to what Linda was saying, that there was a time, you know, back in the sort of early noughties, if you like, when a- actors like Hezbollah, for example, were actually actively making video games at the time they made Special Force and Special Force 2, and indeed also right-wing affiliate groups and groups directly associated with right-wing extremism were also actually making games. Um, I think it's probably worth, you know, as as the conversation unfolds, talking about, in some senses, why they've stopped doing that. But I think I totally agree with Linda that the big shift now has been into kind of almost the exploitation of or, or relationships to kind of gamey culture. It's just one of the things about all of that, though, which is slightly which I think we need to do much more research on if I'm honest is that there are quite a lot of assumptions that are often made about gamer culture um, that it naturally segues straight out of into the same sorts of cultures and it I think and again we can come back to this if you like but there is a lot of um, reflexivity and self-awareness within the gaming community because there is actually a real concern of, of exactly the things that Linda was was mentioning really that you know of this this sort of misogynistic and unpleasant side to gamer culture. So there are, you know, strong moves within the community itself to actually kind of sweep a lot of this stuff out, which I think is also pretty important to emphasize. Recently there has been much discussion around the gamification of radicalization, so to say. Linda, in your research you distinguish between top down gamification and self gamification. Could you explain what's the difference between those two and what's gamification in general? Yes. So gamification in general is the introduction of gaming elements into non-gaming contexts. So, for example, competing with your friends on a fitness app, uh, who runs the most miles, who loses the most weight, that's part of gamification. So it has actually been used um, in a lot of commercial applications. And uh, usually it's used... Um, with the intention of changing behavior, so nudging people into behaving a certain way. And this sort of gamification can be seen also uh, in extremist forums, for example. That's where it first occurred. That would be top-down. Top-down gamification uh, is the gamification done by extremist organization with the aim of keeping people engaged and potentially facilitating their radicalization processes, uh, whereas bottom-up or self-gamification is the process done by people who are currently undergoing the process of radicalization or who are at the end uh, of their radicalization. Um, An example would, for 
be the Christchurch live streaming or the live streaming in Halle. So perpetrators trying to tap into gamification in order to gain more publicity or to uh, facilitate the engagement of people with their attacks. And uh, top-down, so as I said, this uh, has been pioneered in uh, jihadist forums. Uh, very early on, there were uh, points to be collected, so-called reputation points. The more comments you made and the better they were ranked by others, um, the better your reputation. You could earn privileges of adding a picture to your account or um, even getting into secret groups. Um, so it was... Uh, system of attaching rewards to increased engagement. And then for self-radicalization, it's done in a bottom-up uh, manner by the people themselves without necessarily an instruction from an extremist organization. Very early on, in the sort of early noughties, what I think is really striking was that groups like Hezbollah were actively making games, um, and they explicitly set them out. They were they were launched by their propaganda wing, and they were explicitly stated as integral to uh, what they then actively saw as a set of recruitment strategies. So, in in a lot of ways, that um, listeners would probably understand that you know the idea that a game is produced which has an aim to kind of engage and persuade somebody to to join the, the sort of objectives of a group. The reasons for that, and this is probably going to be quite a controversial thing to say in some senses, but I would suggest to you that what those organizations at the time were doing is just actually replicating what were deemed to be highly successful strategies by um, non-terrorist organizations. It's probably not remotely surprising. I mean, obviously, far-right groups and Islamist groups replicate one another, right? And they learn almost continuously from developments in broader society. But the key thing, I think, here to bear in mind is that the US uh, military itself produced a game called America's Army, which they themselves self-evaluated and saw as the quote-unquote most successful recruitment tool that they had ever developed. So in light of all of that, it's not terribly surprising that these organizations would at least initially make use of these kinds of tools. And But what I think is quite important to emphasize as Linda really rightly has said, is that they've moved quite strikingly away from this kind of activity. And there are a number of reasons for that, which obviously we can talk about. But the general shift now has been much more towards processes of gamification, which Linda's summarised extremely well. Though I've got very little to add to that, you know, but through the utilisation of video gaming style iconography, the usage of memes, this kind of thing. Um, and particularly through producing videos and stuff like that, which often replicate kind of first-person perspectives, uh, which you would quite often see in a video game. So that that is a really significant shift away from the making of games, which have pretty much died out. Now, there are a lot of modifications to existing games, but the actual production of games is, is very much on the back burner, um, rather now towards this strategy of gamification, which I think has now become much, much more prevalent in their strategies. Absolutely. And, and perhaps I could ask you for a couple of reasons or why you think that this shift might have happened. Well, I think I've, there are two major sets of reasons. Lakomi has written a really nice little piece, actually, which I think it's certainly worth people having a look at if they're interested in this, where he talks much more on the kind of production side. He talks about questions of production, distribution, the fact that actually these video games are very difficult to make in terms of the quality of them. 
you know, often being quite poor, it's very hard to make a good game, right? You need access to the tools and technologies and you won't be surprised to realise that video game developers like Epic, who make the Fortnite game, are not very happy with licensing their technologies to a violent extremist organisation. Um, but I think the, uh, there are things that we would add, in a sense, from our own research findings to what Lakomi said. And I think one of the things that's really important to emphasise is that when you're producing a game, what a game does, and Jesper Yule, who's a games theorist, talks about this, what a game specialises in is what Jesper Yule terms the art of failure. Now, what he means by that is there is a sweet spot with a video game where you derive pleasure from your failings. So in other words, you know, it's exciting, partly because you succeed and fail, you overcome obstacles, this kind of a thing. Now, you don't need me to tell you that if you're trying to produce an arresting piece of, of political propaganda, um, recruitment tool, uh, what have you, and the player or the person engaging with it is then failing, it might actually put them off. So I would also suggest that there is something quite difficult about producing games that hit the sweet spot, if you like, that are arresting, engaging, enjoyable and pleasurable, which is after all what the game, a successful propaganda tool would need to be, um, is a very, very hard thing to do, actually. So a lack of technology, difficulties of distribution, you know, a lack of competences, if you like, on behalf of these organisations, but also the real challenges that come actually from just making engaging games is one of the reasons that I think they've moved much more to things like gamification, memes, and other forms of political propaganda. Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that maybe it's also an ideological issue. We've seen a sort of a progression by ISIS, for example, to forbid music, forbid TV, forbid any type of entertainment. So I thought that maybe uh, I, from an ideological standpoint, it's not exactly the best idea to promote your ideology via a video game if you actually forbid video games. So I think there's a sort of ambivalence and a tension between trying to utilize games and gaming elements in the propaganda, especially aimed at Western recruits, but then also saying, oh, but we're not really supporting gaming culture as a whole. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point, Linda. I completely agree with that. It's, it's an interesting ambiguity here, isn't it? Because on the one hand, as you rightly say, there's a hostility, if you like, to gaming, to kind of leisure in that sense. But also there is this utilization of these sort of gaming memes, you know, the kind of Call of Duty memes, the Grand Theft Auto memes, this sort of stuff, which obviously then provides a, a certain set of ambiguities. But I, I guess one of the things that most people suggest, isn't it, is that a lot of those memes come out of, non-affiliated organizations or non you know those sorts of people rather necessarily than coming directly out of official propagandas but no i think you're absolutely right i think ideology really is important here yeah yeah and i think it's a sort of trade-off between doctrine and recruitment my guess is that the stronger the organization is at a certain point in time the less it has to rely on games for recruiting even more people, but the weaker the organization is, the more they will try to utilize every tool they can possibly have to engage more people. So talking about memes, we actually recorded our podcast episode on the exploitation of meme culture last week. So that was focused on far-right violent extremists and one of the insights that came out of it is that visual culture appears to be a central element of terrorist and violent extremist strategies for propaganda and reinforcement purposes. 
could one of you develop on how this is played out in relation to gaming culture? I think that sort of the visuals are especially important, yes, in using games, the sort of uh, Call of Duty visuals of first-person shooter games that were used by ISIS, for example, in their propaganda videos. But I also think there is a different um, element of uh, visuals, and that's the sort of uh, leaderboards that are associated with gamification. I think providing people with a visible measure of their progress, let's say, of how many points they have, or in the right-wing culture, how many uh, people they shot, and if they would shoot 15, where would they be on the scoreboard? It adds an element of certainty for people as to what to do. I mean, I think mainly the, the key thing and point I'd make, I guess, is that clearly we live in a world, don't we, where increasingly people are talking about it being a visual world. In the context of all of that, and it, it relates, I guess, to the sort of the interrelationships, the intertextual associations, to use the sort of jargon, I guess, that I was making in the broader point about the usage of video games from, you know, reaping US military strategy and recruitment terms. I mean, it's hardly a surprise, is it, I guess, given that we live in a world of, of the rapid distribution circulation of images, that images would be so profound. I mean, one of the things just on images, of course, that comes out of all of this is, of course, that as you produce images, that what we do know is that human beings are now suffering from what we call compassion fatigue. We suffer from violence fatigue. So we've seen it all before, so to speak. And one of the issues there, of course, when you're trying to produce ever more arresting or engaging images um, is how, if at all, you continue to engage an audience when they've quote unquote seen it all before. And this, of course, is, is you know is a challenge which confronts every group, whether they be a humanitarian organisation trying to raise money for disaster relief, right across to, to a group uh, using images in, in much more kind of ethically and morally and problematic fashion. But it's, this, it's a kind of very much for me a manifestation of the kind of visualisation of, of world politics, to put it in kind of crude or simplistic terms, I guess. So just picking up on what you both said about the importance of visual culture and also, Linda, with leaderboards and scoring. So we've seen this also and obviously in far-right terrorist attacks, so both with Christchurch and Halle. Another trend that emerged out of this was the, the live streaming of attacks um, with analysts pointing out the importance or the resemblance of this live streaming trend with first-person shooter games um, and then the live streams being shared uh, thereafter on gaming platforms. Obviously, we know that the IS, the Islamic State, also use this first-person perspective in propaganda videos. Is this perspective an important element in the exploitation of gaming culture with gaming processes? Has this, has this been overemphasized? What are your thoughts on this? So I think the perspective is fairly important because it creates intimacy. So watching a live stream where you know it's real people in a real event uh, getting really shot that's as intimate as you can get without being physically present. So I think taking the perspective of the shooter is a very, very important and very potentially radicalizing experience just because um, you create the feeling that you are sort of in his spot or in, in the perpetrator's uh, spot. I think for first-person shooter games, it's the same, the immersion into the game and the identification with the avatars is higher when it's a first person uh, perspective than when you have a sort of strategic perspective looking at um, a map, for example. Um, so I do think that it's very decisive uh, for radicalization potentially. 
Yeah, I think I think that the key, isn't it, is that a, a third person perspective is very much me as an outsider looking on at an unfolding sequence of events. The whole issue here is, of course, embodiment, isn't it? I come to embody uh, the very perspective that I come to see. So clearly, on there's an interesting paradox here. I mean, with a with a first person shooter game, it's me controlling the controller any theory at least and there's there's a lot of research which again we can talk about which problematizes quite a lot of these assumptions but in in broad terms the general argument is that if i'm pulling the trigger and it's a first person perspective that somehow that's more engaging and, and so forth clearly the interesting thing about a, a first person perspective in an experience which is slightly more disembodied insofar as it's not me controlling the action is the extent to which that may or may not be more arresting versus more off-putting, right? Because there's something about the shocking nature of first-person imagery. So in that sense, of course, the kind of appeal of this stuff, this is where we move to where, um, whether it's it's appealing to kind of those with predisposed to the attitudes which the person's trying to communicate or to the extent to which it actually quote-unquote alters people's attitudes. Now, I think that, again, is a really interesting set of research questions because it's you know, a lot for a lot of people looking at first-person images um, when they're not in control of them would actually put them off rather than, than be found to be more arresting. So it's a very uh, difficult balancing act. But this, is, this issue of embodiment is crucial. But I think the question, you're absolutely right, that the, 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 there's a very deliberate set of frames in which the images that are produced in a video are deliberately trying to re-articulate and learn from um, what is being produced within first-person video games. That's that's clear, and you can see the parallels really strikingly, actually. To move on to a slightly different angle, perhaps, Nick, your research also focuses on the central role of interactive gameplay. Mm-hmm. How does interactivity play out in the context of terrorist violence experiments and exploitation of games? Right, well, interactivity obviously plays in different sorts of ways, doesn't it? I, mean, I think... As, you know, as we've been talking about at a very broad level, interactivity with through gamification stuff is, is can be arresting. But obviously, games themselves are interactive objects. Now, in the context, broadly speaking, of a terrorist relationship to a game, then obviously interactivity can play in different ways. Either player can be, if you like, shooting terrorists, which is often the situation in the mainstream Call of Duty style game, Battlefield, whatever you want to call it. Or I can, of course, be perpetrating the terrorist atrocities as a terrorist. Now, obviously, from the perspective of the the normal discussion here, we're talking about a game in which the player is cast as a terrorist who is then shooting the quote-unquote enemy of the terrorist, which is often, you know, an ethnic minority group um, or or so forth. Now, the, the, the interesting question here about interactivity is the limited possibility space, to use a phrase by Ian Bogos, that many of these games promote. So in other words, the average quote-unquote terrorist game involves the player basically just shooting and destroying and killing lots and lots of people. Now, one interesting question that I think is worth considering is how effective that then proves to be actually to the interests of a group that might be trying to communicate a slightly more nuanced set of messages to a potential audience so in other words if i experience a game and all i get to do is to shoot kill and destroy people then that may actually serve again to undermine some of my strategic interests if actually i'm trying to make the point for example that my organization is about building a new society or is building a particular set of social practices and political 
interactions. Now, in other words, the point about video gaming and interactivity, and whilst I'm not for a minute trying to suggest ways that terrorists might make better games, um, but it would seem to me that one of the interesting things here is how limited they are in terms of how they thought about how to use interactivity insofar as they all are relying on this very particular set of practices and processes in and around shooting and destroying, um, not least as you know, as, as organizations like IS are trying to communicate, they're not just about killing, right? They're also about trying to build, quote unquote, different sorts of societies. Now, that is, for me, is a really interesting thing because actually video gaming offers much more scope for interactivity than has hitherto anyway been utilized by these groups. And I say all of that, you know, very aware that it raises all kinds of other ethical questions about whether or not that's quote-unquote giving advice as to how to make better games, so to speak, uh, which is obviously in and of itself quite a fraught set of questions. Um, I think one of the main factors that I would add to that is the sort of uh, moral disengagement. Bandura says that you can uh, sort of selectively deactivate your moral compass, um, and that can be aided by a certain set of frames like euphemistic labeling, calling it to neutralize someone, not to kill someone, mm-hmm. or a sort of sanitized display of violence. And I think some games might nudge the players into uh, sort of practicing uh, moral disengagement because actually a lot of first-person shooter games are based exactly on the moral disengagement factors that Bandura details, like setting the stage in such a way that your enemy has perpetrated horrible crimes and what you're doing as retaliatory violence is sort of very uh, diminished in comparison uh, with that. And I think... In that way, um, you get players to sort of rehearse aggressive cognitive scripts and sort of cognitively uh, simulate the violence that then could possibly lead to um, a habituation effect or uh, sort of not viewing real-world violence as terrible as they might without that exposure. Yeah, I mean, can I just come back on that? I mean, again, this might be somewhere, Linda, uh, you and I may come at this from a slightly different perspective. I don't know. Um, I mean, one of the things, you know, about this conversation about violence and about players is that a lot of the research that's been done so far has has utilised what's termed uh, an active media approach. Broadly speaking, it often comes out of the tradition of psychology. And it does, in my judgment anyway, work on the assumption that players are somehow kind of affected um, by exposure to violent content. And, And again, there are huge ethical questions here about how you do this kind of research, but one of the kind of positions that somebody like Miguel Sicard takes in his book, The Ethics of Video Games, is actually that players themselves are, as in his perspective anyway, hugely reflexive, right? In other words, they when they play games, they are very aware that this is a video game uh, and not reality. They, they themselves play games. They, they do often seek pleasure in violence, but that violence has got no relationship to real-world violence. But this, of course, is where it gets a very complicated set of questions because what he also says, and I think this is the key point in a lot of ways, is that 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 ethics is going to be experienced or engaged with very differently depending on who that person is. So, you know, there are going to be people who are less reflexive, uh, more susceptible, um, and particularly those who are younger uh, and or more impressionable. So it's a really complicated set of ethical questions. But... I suppose my final observation would be we don't we still haven't done enough research on the direct relationship between um, 
content in this area and users of that content and again it's you know it's an ethical ethical minefield like you put you know you don't are you going to get citizens to start playing terrorist games i mean clearly that's a heckishly complicated set of ethical questions but in the absence of it i think it's always worth problematizing at least or at least thinking through about the reflexivity that, that large numbers of players do have not least because you know millions and millions and millions of people are playing quote unquote violent games and apparently are not um, being affected by them. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's the sort of, uh, in terms of radicalization, it's the age old puzzle of why people, some people radicalized and then others exposed to similar circumstances or similar frames, similar propaganda um, mm -hmm. are not radicalized. They're sort of uh, who climbs Mogadam's staircase. And I think you're raising a very important point that you cannot really yet maybe make a causal link between violent games and violent behavior, much less terrorist behavior. Uh, so it would definitely be wrong to sort of blame games or blame gaming culture and work in that direction rather than finding out who is most susceptible to these kinds of uh, images or frames. Yeah, I mean, thinking about susceptibility then, Nick, I know that your recent research has focused a lot on how games aren't so much of a recruitment tool, but more as a way to reinforce or normalize beliefs for those already in the know, so to speak. I mean, perhaps you could give us a couple of lines about this area of research and, and how that fits into exactly what you've just been saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. I mean, it's um, also just in, on this point, it's worth mentioning my the, the person I've been working closely with at the moment, if that's okay, a guy called Joe Whitaker, who's just finishing his PhD at the University of Swansea, and I've worked very closely with Joe. Um, but yeah, very much so. And, and what we're trying to argue, I guess, is that these games often are really better seen, rather than as recruitment tools, are better seen as forms of propaganda, which are targeted often at those who are already predisposed to, or at least interested in and or informed by or of the messages of an organization so in other words a lot of kind of particular games are in fairly hard to reach areas of the internet and they they contain for example particular kinds of what we often call easter eggs or hidden little messages and stuff like that which assume that the person playing it would have some understanding of what the group is trying to say so what we're sort of saying is that a lot of the time people search out a game to actually express pleasures in the process of killing, for example, an ethnic minority, because that is the kind of attitude they already have, rather than being transformed by playing that sort of a game. And I think there, you know, the, the question then for us is, how do they step toward that place, you know, rather than assuming that the game itself is doing a lot of work? They've already got these predisposed attitudes to search these things out in the first place. That's what kind of where we're coming at this from. Far right, and Islamist extremists players tend to learn from each other when it comes to new technologies. In this case, what are the similarities and differences that you might have noticed when researching on this topic? As we already discussed, uh, there's a bit of a difference in an ideological approach uh, to gamification in games. Uh, that's not to say that um, Islamist forums aren't gamified and that we will not see a gamified app, for example, in the future. Um, published by a jihadist organization, but I think there's a bit of a, an ambivalent uh, relationship to games. Possibly, maybe the right-wing culture 
um, of sort of keeping scoreboards uh, for different types of attacks, uh, like the Encyclopedia Dramatica uh, did, the sort of outright Wikipedia page kept the high score list before they were taken down, um, with Breivik leading it, uh, of course. Um, and I haven't come across this sort of uh, leaderboard for uh, martyrs, uh, jihadist martyr operations. I think it might be that there's a more egalitarian approach, let's say, uh, not so much comparison between uh, different perpetrators of who shot more or sort of beating his score, the famous line on 8chan that the Christchurch perpetrator posted, but maybe more sort of every single person that you kill counts rather than uh, as a competition between killing. But I do think that there there are copycat uh, attacks within right-wing extremists, uh, the right-wing extremist milieu, let's say. Um, and it's not unfeasible to think that at some point there will be a live stream of a jihadist attack uh, in the West, for example, just because it has been, quote-unquote, so successful in gaining attention in Western media. And I doubt that the jihadist uh, extremist organizations will not try to play on that and use that to their ends. Well, I was actually going to... Um, I, mean, I think what, I, you know, what Linda said was really, really interesting to me. Um, I was going to make a slightly different point, actually, which, which sort of builds around in a slightly different way on, on what she was saying, was that one of the things that I think is really strikingly similar yet different for me is the relationship that these groups and their messages, how they resonate, if you like, with broader socio-cultural developments within gaming... Now, what I mean by that is, and this this is, again, a slightly controversial point in some senses, I guess, but um, David Leonard, for example, who is a leading academic who's written a lot on game studies more broadly, he's written, and he's going back now for, for several decades, really, he's been writing extensively about how particular kinds of games normalise messages, mainstream games he's interested in, normalise messages that might actually resonate with, with extremist groups. Now, he started his analysis with the Grand Theft Auto series, and what he said was that why would you bother to make a game as a right-wing extremist group? And this was this was these, he was re-quoting people from things like Stormfront um, when GTA San Andreas says everything that we want to say more effectively than we ever could. Now, one of the things that I think is worth considering through that is how. Um, now, you we can contest and argue about the messages within the mainstream games. Um, again, to a large degree, but it's worth just thinking a little bit about what might stem from that. If you're a right-wing group, for example, and historically at least, your broad brush view has been um, to, you know, to produce games in which you are uh, killing people of the Islamic faith, and there are thousands of games out there, are hundreds of games out there that allow you to do that, why would you bother to make a game? For the Islamist groups, this, the difference is obviously extremely striking because, of course, there are very few Western-made mainstream games that allow you to play the role of an Islamist or Islamist-supporting uh, individual. Now, so in other words, that's something I think to think about. And, and the reason I think that isn't a trivial observation is, is for two, two recent events, or relatively recent events, um, you know, in academia or anything in the last... 10 years is recent, of course, but for normal people, it's less recent. But um, the controversy in and around the game Medal of Honor 
um, was quite an interesting thing to think through, which is this was a game which was set in the early periods of the Afghan war. The multiplayer component, originally at least, was to allow you to play um, as both sides of the conflict. So you could fight, in other words, as the Afghan quote-unquote resistors. Immediately, uh, the developer get caught up in a thing and they take away that option from the game. You get to play as op for or opposing force. Now, in other words, the politics of allowing you to shoot um, a Western soldier in an online element was deemed to be politically unpalatable. So that's just, I think, is a really important difference here. And what's been really striking here is how right-wing groups have similarly responded or reacted to the prospect of um, killing fascists. So, for example, the game Wolfenstein, the New Colossus, where you shoot, you know, fascists as a, in a kind of fantasy setting as a sort of zombie fascists, zombie Nazis. Um, a number of right-wing groups in America responded to that and said that was politically unacceptable. And indeed, the recent game Far Cry 5 has been caught up uh, in a controversy where, um, again, right-wing groups in the US have said it's unacceptable for a game in which you get to shoot um, fanatical right-wing people in a kind of contemporary game. So the point of that sort of potentially slightly long comment really was just to, to make the observation that it's, for me, what is interesting about this is the way in which these particular games sit within a milieu, if you like, of a massive number of commercially made games which are often engaging with similar kinds of themes and topics, which is, again, I think really important to kind of contextualise because it comes back to the point that why bother to make a game if somebody else is saying what you want to be said for you? Um, and I think that's sometimes sometimes we kind of forget about it because we don't focus in on the whole story, so to speak. Absolutely. And, and I, I think uh, that's a really helpful distinction to make, Nick. So thank you, you know, thinking about what quote unquote uh, mainstream resources are out there for these groups and, the, and their supported networks already. But at, at Tech Against Terrorism, we support the global tech sector in uh, helping them build capacity to tackle terrorist uh, exploitation. So a lot of this is that we're working with smaller platforms, um, often across different types of technologies. And we are increasingly, of course, working with uh, gaming platforms as well. So I was wondering um, if either of you could give any perspective on this. So gaming culture obviously evolves partly in its own online environment with dedicated gaming platforms. Could you tell us a little bit about how these platforms are exploited by terrorists and violent extremists and their supported networks? So for example, uh, the gaming platform Discord hosts a lot of uh, private chats that can be attributed to right-wing extremist groups. Uh, Julia Ibner has written about it, I believe. And they have like really let's say, graphic names like oven baked juice or Reichlords or something like that. So very easily identifiable. That this is probably not something uh, to chat about uh, your dogs, but a very different type of group. So I would say if it's sort of this obvious, it should uh, be a rather easy fix uh, to take a look at these uh, groups more closely and to check what's going on there. Of course, um, with everything online, it's the problem of where is the server uh, and which company uh, are we talking about? How are the freedom of speech rights in the country in question? Um, but I think if if there are things that are this obvious, um, it should hopefully be possible to detect these groups and then um, 
potentially shut them down if the legal system allows. Mm, exactly, and of course, there are different different manifestations for how these gaming platforms uh, can, you know, enable playing. So obviously, you have the VoIP, as with Discord, and you have these distributed servers. But then also just being able to actually build your whole um, gaming environment from scratch. I know there are some particularly prominent platforms in that case who have a very very young user base um i think you know something for like nine to 13 year olds um so which is obviously a, a particular area of worry so yeah absolutely and thank you um nick was there anything you wanted to add to that yeah i mean i think just to add i mean i guess that clearly one thing on, on you know online interactivity is obviously hellishly difficult to police i mean even even basic things like like you know, Microsoft Xbox Live, you know, people are swearing at each other and Microsoft have never wanted to get involved in listening in and or moderating behaviours. Textual chat, I think, as Linda's rightly said, it's, it's easier, isn't it, to identify particular kinds of practices. Um, I suppose that the one things that, that um, the gaming industry more generally, I suppose, could start to talk more actively about is what they feel about mods. Now, clearly... The DNA of the PC community is very different here to the console uh, landscape. So in other words, if you produce modifications, um, say if you were to, for example, produce a paint job for a car in a in a prominent driving game, for example, on Xbox or PlayStation, the likelihood that that's almost certainly going to get pulled, right? I mean, you know, Microsoft, Sony, etc., keep a very, very, very tight set of reins on those on that sort of content and they just haul it off um obviously the pc community is much much more free form it's had a much more um kind of flexible set of practices and one of the questions i guess that they themselves right across the piece here it seems to me would have to ask themselves is what they want to do about that because obviously pc community has been very adept at using the labor of gamers historically not least to recruit people for the future. Organisations like Valve, for example, have historically recruited a lot of their developers straight out of modifications that have been made to their games, like Counter-Strike, this sort of stuff. This is a very common thing. So, you know, freedom, giving the code away, letting people modify the game, produce them what they want to produce, sometimes on private servers, other times on more public servers. That is where I think it gets really ethically problematic. But obviously, for um, you know a smaller tech startup, the size of the files is obviously going to be instructive in and of itself, right? If it's a mod or something like that, it's going to be reasonably sizable. But I mean, even on Steam, you can go on and download uh, mods and so forth that for a number of people would find ethically problematic. You know, they're allowing you to play conflicts from different perspectives, and that for a lot of people is ethically, you know, going too far already. So, I think the first question probably is about how much tools are you willing to let from my perspective anyway the lay public have access to because almost all the games that i've talked about um at least initially certainly the right-wing extremist games are modifications to existing games and or utilize off-the-shelf technologies to produce something and then distribute it and that might be an interesting set of ethical questions about whether the games industry needs to do more i mean i guess the flip side would be would you tell a guitar manufacturer that they are responsible for the songs that somebody sings and writes and plays with a guitar uh, and the general view so far of the games industry has been that we're like a game you know like a guitar maker we're not like a, a broadcaster and that i guess is the really interesting ethical moral question here 
for me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the million dollar question in a lot of ways and, and really is the, the basis for the majority of the work that, that we do, how we can actually regard these technology platforms and, and what role they should or shouldn't be playing. What should listeners really take away from this? There still remains, uh, in my view, a general tendency to see the relationship between games and gamification and the users of those games you know, in a kind of uncritically reflexive fashion so that we, we still seem to me at least um, often to assume much more so, I guess, in, in the public conversation than, than potentially in an academic one. But there's still a lot of academics guilty of this, this idea that somehow a user will experience a game and will be radicalised by that artefact. And I think what I suppose my takeaway would be is that you know, you'd be unsurprised to say that I'm going to say this as an academic, but we do feel, as certainly the research that I've been doing with my colleague Joe Whitaker, is that that to see these things much more as systems of propaganda is actually more constructive. In other words, that games, particularly the actual artifacts of a game, are much, much more likely to be engaged with by those who are already predisposed to the attitudes of an organisation. Now, clearly, memes, other forms of visual iconography that we were talking about earlier, videos and stuff like this, which utilise intertextually understanding from games and gamification, are more likely to operate um, in a more generalised way. But I think it's important to distinguish between something like a game, um, which involves the player undertaking particular actions as a representative of a terrorist organisation in often different kinds of ways, that I, I guess would be my final, my sort of overwhelming thought. But obviously, watch this space, right? What we do know is that that organisations are using games for uh, active forms of recruitment. They haven't been certainly in the on extremist realm, in my view, for a while. But you know, it is it is a trend being used by other actors with certain degrees of success. So it is something that we need to be highly vigilant of, not least because, of course, games are very, very attractive for a lot of impressionable people who are often young. And that is, for me, one of the biggest concerns I have about the video gaming industry more generally is that I would suggest that it doesn't do enough to think seriously about the content that they know is getting into the hands of those who are underage. And that is, you know, remains an ongoing concern to me that we know a lot of kids that are playing games are under 18 and clearly you know they would be more impressionable similarly there is there is a danger here where this kind of content could get into those you know more impressionable hands which is obviously more deeply deeply worrying linda is there anything you'd like to add so i would agree that for uh, games per se it's very difficult uh, to establish a causal relationship between the violent content and the violent action I do think that, as Nick said, for gamification, it might be a different issue, uh, not causally, but saying um, how far it, it can be utilized by extremist organizations. Um, I mean, writing about music, Pislak uh, writes, when attempting to draw people to radical ideology, do not lead with the ideology if you can find a more attractive garment in which to dress in the message. And I think gamification provides this sort of garment because... It is a psychological process of sort of keeping people engaged by, oh, just one more point or just, uh, oh, I feel I feel better about myself because I reached this level or it's super interesting. It's more fun, etc. So I think in terms of 
um, transferring ideology or presenting themselves, um, extremist organizations are probably going to find out that gamification is a very effective way to do it um, and probably have already found out as, as we have discussed. Um, so I think that as Nick said, watch this space. I'm fairly certain that in terms of gamification, we will hear more about that in terms of radicalization and extremist organizations in the future. Thank you very much. That was Linda Schlegel and Nick Robinson discussing how terrorists and violent extremists are exploiting the gaming culture to serve their own group of this. We will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at TechVersusTerrorists. You can hear our previous podcasts at techagainstterrorism.fm and read more about our work on our website at www.techagainstterrorism.org, where you can also find out how you can sign up to our newsletter. See you next time. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.